1: And there's a lot of stuff in here with kings and government and power. And sons being jealous and brothers being angry at brothers. So
0: much. Fighting over power. But before we do that, let's jump back to something that we didn't take time for last time. We, we try to make these podcasts just the right amount. Not too much, not too little. Kind of like the Goldilocks zone of podcasting. But there was something that we felt like we should go back and address. So back in Ether chapter 3, this is especially for those teachers and parents out there who are trying to teach truth to other people. There's this beautiful teaching moment where the brother of Jared brings his stones up to the Lord, and he's a little hesitant. I know this is a big ask, Lord, uh, you know, would you stick your finger down and touch these? But watch the Lord, who is the master teacher, teach him. So he sticks his finger down, and the brother of Jared sees the finger of the Lord, and he's kind of blown away. And the Lord says, why hast thou fallen? Verse 7, I knew not that you had flesh and blood. And he corrects that. I don't have flesh and blood. I'm a spirit body. I'm going to take upon myself flesh and blood. And then the very end of verse 9 is one of the most intriguing questions the Lord asks, but it is a great message for teachers. The Lord said, sawest thou more than this? Now, do you really think the Lord doesn't know what the brother of Jared saw and didn't see? The Lord is not asking for information he doesn't have. So why would the Lord say, hey, did you see more than my finger? Because what that does is it plants in the head of the brother of Jared a divine curiosity. Well, you mean... I can't. Could I see more than your finger? And the Lord is a master at creating divine curiosity. Hey, did you see more than my finger? Without saying it, he basically gave the brother of Jared permission to ask to see more than just his finger, he created divine curiosity. And the Lord is so good at this. Think, for example, about how we came to know about the work for the dead. This entire doctrine of salvation for the dead started because the Lord created divine curiosity. He gave Joseph Smith a vision of the celestial kingdom. He showed him the gate, the streets... He showed Joseph Smith the celestial kingdom. Hey, look, there's Adam and Eve. Look, there's your mom and your dad. And hey, wait, who's that over there? Why, that's Alvin. Okay, end of vision. Joseph seems to indicate that that was the end of the vision. He saw Alvin there. And then the Lord just says, okay, see ya. Now tell me what he just did. He created perfect divine curiosity. And it, it works because Joseph Smith sits there saying, wait a minute. How is Alvin here? How is Alvin here? He died before the restoration occurred. How could he be in the celestial kingdom? And by pondering, Joseph Smith creates the, the setting. He creates his mind. He prepares himself for the greatest truth about the salvation of the dead. The Lord didn't come down and just simply say, hey, Joseph, let me tell you about work for the dead. He created divine curiosity so that Joseph reached out for understanding. Now, to all you parents and to all you teachers, that seems to be our jobs, is to create divine curiosity so that they reach out and seek answers. That simple question, "Sawest thou more than this, was not just a, hey, I need some information. It was designed to create divine curiosity. So I would encourage all of you teachers, all parents, to ponder, is my teaching creating divine curiosity so that people are yearning for truth and striving to receive it? And that's when the Lord can come down and teach the bigger truths. Hey, why Alvin? Hey, look, there's Alvin in the Celestial Kingdom. Okay, see ya. But you know that's going to stay with them, and it's going to churn in their soul until they have an answer. So something we missed from our last
1: podcast, but we just wanted to throw that in. That's really good. It's a good teaching skill. I like to liken it also to when we're with our kids and they bring something up. It's a good time to have that conversation.
0: This it, is the moment
1: because they are divinely curious. yeah. And then sometimes it's good just to not give them the whole answer. And I think the Lord works with us that way too, right? Where he wants us to, to keep reaching out. So I really like that in Ether 3. To me, the whole front end of Ether is all about they leave, they pass through this valley called the Valley of Nimrod, right? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and then they come into the presence of God. So it's all this idea of, of a temple, this idea of coming into his presence. And we're going to see that throughout the narrative. I'm going to talk just a little bit about the boats. So Ether 6 starts off, you know, we read about the stones that have been prepared in verse 2. It says the Lord prepared the stones, which the brother Jared carried up into the mountain. And then it says in the middle of verse 2 that he put the stones into the vessels, which were prepared one in each end. And they did give light to the vessels. And there were eight of them. So there were 16 stones, and we have two going into each vessel. And then it says, The Lord caused the stones to shine in the darkness, to give light to the men and women and children, that they might not cross the great waters in darkness. Now, what I find so interesting here is these ideas of the ocean as a crossing and the ideas of the ocean as the great monster or the great deep are all over the place. So, for example, look in verse 4. In the end, it says they went forth into the sea. End of verse 5, they were tossed. Verse 6, they were many times buried in the depths of the sea and the waves which broke upon them. And they were great and terrible tempests which were caused by the fierceness of the wind. That's all verse 6. So, the ocean is this It's this motif of chaos. We're crossing in going through this difficult period. Verse 7, buried in the deep, middle of verse 7, they were encompassed by many waters. And then we get to verse 10, and it says, they were driven forth, and no monster of the sea could break them. One of the gods of the ancient Near Eastern world that that the brother of Jer would have been familiar with was this god of chaos, and he had different names, but and sometimes it was personified as a female goddess, but it was this God that represented the ocean and represented chaos. And so if you look in these verses, verse 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 10, all of those ideas are there. But then we get this idea of two stones into one. So there are 16 stones, and we have two going into each vessel. Now, there's a book called Roots of the Bible, and Friedrich Weiner wrote it. He's not a Latter-day Saint, but he really likes to get into the weeds of the language of Hebrew. And he talks about this principle and he calls it the two into one principle. And to understand this, you gotta kind of backtrack and understand well, what comes before two into one? And that is one into two. And in a nutshell, he basically says we leave the one and we become divided, but then our goal is to become united again. And so, an example of this that he talks about is Adam Adam is made, and then from him, this one that comes from God, we make two, we make Eve. And then what does God want to do to Adam and Eve? He wants to make the two become one. And if you think about the greatest ordinance that we do in the temple, we go and the two, male and female are joined that they may become one flesh. And they do that. And it's it's symbolic and it's sacred, but it's also a two to one principle, meaning that the two are to become one, to come into God's presence. And Friedrich Weidner even goes so far as to say, The idea of leaving Egypt and coming into Canaan. Sorry, this is really nerdy. If you take the word for Egypt, which is Mitzrayim, and you take the word for Canaan, every letter has like a numerical equivalent to it. So if you add up Mitzrayim, you get 380. Well, if you add up Canaan, you get 190. And so what he says is they leave the world and they come into the promised land, the two becomes one. And so, is that happening here? I don't know. We have these ancient ideas. I think this whole text has multiple layers. We're going to talk about the basic reading of it, which is, don't be bad. When you do bad, bad things happen, which I think is a very basic reading. But there's also layers to this that are riddled with temple theology. Mike, you see that a lot in the scriptures. For
0: example, the brother of Jared The tradition is that they're leaving the Tower of Babel because the Lord's going to divide the languages. So, anciently, there was one language that got divided into multiple languages. Zephaniah tells us that in the latter days, in the millennium, we will again go back to one language. So, one became multiple, Yep. and in the millennium, multiple will become one. And we see that with the land, even. There was one continent— that in the days of Peleg was divided. So the land went from one to two, so to speak, symbolically. And then what are we going to see in the millennium? The land will be reunited two into one. So when you study the Old Testament and the millennium, you begin to see a lot of the oneness that the earth started out with that became divided. So there was one river that flowed out of Eden and got divided into four heads. So, coming out of the Garden of Eden, coming out of the creation where we had one, now we have, during mortality, a period of multiple, division. And then as we approach the millennium, we see all that division come back into one. There will be one land, there will be one language. One king. And one king. And so, the suggestion here is one into two is kind of the transition out of God's
1: presence and into mortality. And then you have the eight, eight vessels going across water. You have the eight in the vessel that Noah built. They're both arcs, as it were. Yeah. So, I mean, there's layers to that. Saved from chaos. Right. Eight is
0: the symbol that I got saved from chaos. Children get baptized when they're eight years old, as if they are now saved from chaos. We believe that you become accountable and that you can make covenants with God at eight years old. So eight is kind of the number of renewal starting over, having a new chance. It's saved from chaos, like Noah's eight boats saved them from chaos, and the Jaredites' eight boats saved them from chaos. Some wonderful symbolism in
1: Numbers. I want to talk a little bit about captivity. So if you go to chapter 8, verse 4 they're in captivity. This is a constant theme. And usually the captivity is associated with they're being wicked or they're doing bad things. Go to the 10th chapter. It seems to be a common theme in the 10th chapter of ether. So look at this. Verse 30 says that, you know, the king is, he serves in captivity in verse 30. In verse 31, it says that he had half and half lived in captivity. And we get to the end of verse 31. They're in captivity. They dwell in captivity. Over and over again, there is these ideas of captivity. In 11.6, there's this great curse. And why is it? Well, they're in captivity. This idea of captivity is all over the place. And my favorite metaphor for it's chapter 9, and it's the story how they rebel, and then prophets come and warn them. In 9.28, it says prophets came and told them to repent, and they don't. And they're living
0: under one of the most wicked kings of all the Jaredites. Heth was the guy that killed his own father with his own sword in order to kick him off the kingdom and usurp his authority. So Heth is a horrible person. He's the one that casts the prophets out and tries to destroy the prophets. So it's no coincidence that when they are under the reign of their most wicked king,
1: that this now happens. So... There's a famine. End of verse 28. The people believed not the words of the prophets. They cast them out and they put them into pits. That's verse 29. Ether 930. There were uh, began to be a dearth upon the land. They don't have food. It says dearth a couple times. There's no rain. And then we get into this really interesting series of verses. It came to pass that there, there came forth poisonous serpents upon the face of the land, and they did poison many people. And then it says that their flocks began to flee before the poisonous serpents. And this idea is repeated over again of poisonous and serpents. Go down to verse 33, the same thing. And then it says that they should pursue them no more. The Lord caused these serpents to stop pursuing them. And why is that? Verse 32, they go southward. So they're in the north, then they go south. Why are they going south? Well, they're being pursued, verse 31. So back to verse 33. They've been pursued, and it says it came to pass that the Lord had caused the serpents should pursue them no more, that they should hedge up the way that the people could not pass, that whoso should attempt to pass might fall by the poisonous serpents. So they're hedged in. They're in the southern region, and they can't get out. And it came to pass that the people did follow the course of the beasts and did devour the carcasses of them which fell by the way until they had devoured them all. Now, parenthetically, that's against the Levitical law. There's two uh, scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about you can't eat this animal that dies along the way. Now, do the Jaredites follow this rule? We don't know. They predate Moses. So I don't know, but here's the thing. Moroni knows, and I think this is here. I think all of this stuff is a deliberate construction, and Moroni knows what he's doing. So they're eating this carrion, as it were, this rotting flesh. Look what it says. Now, when the people saw that they must perish, okay, now I think there's spiritually perish, but also physically perish. It's kind of gross eating, like roadkill. Then they began to repent. And so they cry unto the Lord. And it came to pass that when they humbled themselves sufficiently before the Lord, he did said, rain upon the face of the earth. And the people began to revive again. Another phrase, uh, another way to say that is they began to stand up. The word for revive is to stand. So they're standing before God. I know I'm, I'm massaging this a little bit. And it says that there began to be fruit in the North countries. And so what do they do? Well, the Lord showed him his power and he preserved them. So here's the, here's the idea on a basic reading. I think we can read this and say, oh my gosh, this is totally captivity. It doesn't say captivity in those sentences, in those verses, but really, they're in captivity. But then you got to ask yourself questions like, okay, what's going on with the serpents? Now, in Lehi in the Desert, Hugh Nibley goes on and on about how before you say this isn't historical or this is too fantastic, there are stories and reports in antiquity of armies that couldn't move because of these kinds of things, and he cites a bunch of that. I don't really worry about that. I don't read that and think, okay, how historical is this? That's not my issue. My issue is, okay, why did Moroni put this in here? And why does he talk about this? And so if, if you get go down the rabbit hole of like serpents and poisonous, now it doesn't use the word fiery in here, but that's the word that pops in the Old Testament that can be synonymous with poisonous. So then you get into what are some ways to look at this? In Numbers 21, and we all know this story, right? Where God sends the fiery flying serpents, fiery flying serpents right? The henei kashim, like the serpents that are fiery, they're hashrafim, they're fiery, but fiery can be also poisonous. And this idea of hashrafim, and same with the words for the serpents, it comes from the word for seraph, if you've ever heard of the word seraphim. And if you go to Isaiah 6, we read that Isaiah, when he sees God, surrounding God are these fiery divine beings, these these seraphim, these fiery ones. Now, suffice it to say, I will just leave this as a possible interpretation to read this as there's something divine happening here. God is sending something from the other realm to prevent them. Is it historical? Could it be literal serpents? Absolutely, it could be that. But another way to look at this is that God is hemming them in so that they will choose him certainly not forcing them, but putting them in a circumstance where the serpents cause the people to repent. They cause the people to look at this thing that Moses makes, this nehushtan, this this staff that has a serpent. This article that Moses makes is going to be later put into the Holy of Holies. We're going to read later in the king's narrative that Josiah is going to get it out and he's going to cast out the Melchizedek ones. But early on in their early religion, this serpent had significance and it had ties to the temple. And so when you read this about the serpents, just remember that those words for like poisonous, it's synonymous with the words fiery, burning, or divine. And so the fiery serpents in Numbers 21, to me, are the poisonous serpents in Ether 9. One way to read it is like this is a uh, associated with the temple. So For example, look where the prophets are thrown into pits in verse 29. Now, Moroni is familiar with the third Nephi narrative, where they try to throw the prophets into the pits. He's also familiar with the brass plates, where we read Joseph is thrown into a pit. When Joseph's thrown into a pit, what happens? There's a famine, and they have to repent. So we have some of these themes popping up over and over again. And so after they are thrown into the pits, we read in verse 30, there's a great dearth that happens a couple of times. In that verse. And then the word poisonous pops up like four times. So just remember think burning, or divine, or fiery. And where do they go? They go south to Zarahemla. Now, Zarahemla is a combination of a couple words. The first is Zarah, a very simple word, and that word just means seed or scatter. And the other part of that word can mean to gather. And so we're spreading out seeds, but the purpose, the essence is to gather. Zarahemla is a combination of these two ideas. And so they're southward, and it says in verse 33, that the way is hedged up and the serpents stop pursuing them. But the idea is that they cannot pass. Verse 33, it says that that hedged up the way that the people could not pass. Now, in my mind, I think about Adam and Eve, right? They're cast out from God's presence and there are these divine beings that prevent them from going back. And what happens in 34? In verse 34 of E through 9, it says that they devour the carcasses, which fell by the way until they had devoured them all. Couple thoughts they're completely fallen, they devour all of the fall, right Adam and Eve are completely cast out they're eating flesh and they're they're out of the garden so what do they do? they repent in the end of verse thirty four they humble themselves, and then it says in verse thirty five in the middle that it says that they began to revive again. another word for that is anastasis they stand up. They revive. That word anastasis is going to be repackaged by the gospel writers to discuss the idea of resurrection. So they're standing in God's presence because they're clean, they're humble before him. And then it says that there began to be fruit in the north countries. So they're going to be permitted to come back. God's going to preserve them. And that idea of fruit, we're back to the tree again. And where's the tree in the first temple? It's in the Holy of Holies. So it's this coming back to God. And so another way to read the text is as a temple story. They fall, the divine beings hedge them in, keep them out, but then they can be permitted to come back on conditions of repentance, which we read at the end of verse 34 and the beginning of verse 35. So that's one way. Another reading of this text could be simply to look at this as the story in Luke. So if you go to the narrative in Luke, and I believe it's in Luke 15, We read the story about a young man, and he basically takes his inheritance and he leaves. And then we call it the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son. He takes it and he leaves, and he comes to himself when he's eating the husks with the swine. And if you think about how that could be involved with this story, what are they doing? What are these people eating? Verse 34. They're eating what in the law of Moses says is unclean. They're eating these dead carcasses. So what do they do? End of verse thirty-four. They repent, they humble themselves, and they revive again. In other words, they wake up to themselves. Or another way to read "revive again" is they stand up, and there's fruit. And so I think this is. There's a lot of ways to read this, but you know, on a basic level, there's snakes. On another level, don't do bad things. But on another level, I think we also see how do we avoid spiritual captivity and what kind of types is Moroni using in here? Um, Just as as a side note, in the narrative in Isaiah, when it talks about the Lord being born, Isaiah 9, this is the messianic passage, and it's verse 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. We all know this, right? We've heard Handel's Messiah. Go to the verse right before that. Isaiah 9.5, for every battle of the warriors with confused noise and garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. That word burning right there is that same word that's being used in numbers, that's being used, I believe, in the ether narrative. The word seraphah, it, it just, it's this idea of a burning one, a bright one. There's lots of ways to read it, but I think what we see here is God using his power, and when Jesus comes, one of the terms used for him is a a bright, burning one, and so if you want to geek out more, I'll put more in the show notes, but if you want to read some more stuff on this and see some of these linguistic connections of what's happening, I think Moroni is doing multi-layered things in Ether 9, so I'm just going to leave it at that.
0: And it's not a coincidence that the serpents go away when the Jaredites hit this pinnacle of righteousness. So years later in chapter 10, first we get Levi. Levi becomes a king that kind of turns the nation to righteousness. Koram becomes the next king. He's righteous. Kish becomes the next king. He's righteous. And then Lib becomes a king. That's four generations of kings, all living considerable amount of time, all living righteously. Now, what happens when the Jaredites have four righteous kings in a row? Well, first of all, verse 19, that's when the serpents go away. So the obstacles, the burning ones, the captivity, it's not a coincidence that after they've had four righteous kings in a row, the serpents are taken away. They are free to go into the land southward. They're free to go northward. Now they have room to hunt. And they become, verse 22, industrious. They work fine works. They have silks and fine twine linens. And then this interesting verse in 28. So this is Ether 10, 28. So I remind you, they go back and forth. They rarely go two righteous kings in a row. Because usually what happens with these Jaredites is they'll have a righteous king and then maybe a second righteous king. And then his son gets jealous and tries to kick him off and usurp his authority. Very rarely do they ever have more than one or two righteous kings in a row. But now they've had four righteous kings in a row. And notice what what Moroni says in verse 28. And never could a people more blessed than were they and more prospered by the hand of the Lord. So four kings in a row that choose to be righteous, and Moroni says, there never could be a more blessed people,
1: a more prospered people than they. It's almost like the Book of Mormon in miniature, right? Yeah. They get blessed, and then we go back to being stupid again.
0: It's Lehi, when he comes to America and says, if you obey, you'll prosper. If you don't, you'll be cursed on this land. And so here we see back and forth, righteous king, wicked king. And almost every time there's a wicked king, that's when they struggle, and that's when there's wars. When Heth becomes the king, and he's such an evil man, that's when the famine comes. That's when the snakes come. But finally, we get to a period where we have four righteous kings in a row. We've got Levi, we've got Koram, we've got Kish, and now Lib. And Now, they've had righteous kings. I love... Is it Emmer? Emmer? Emmer was righteous enough to have seen the Son of God. So one of their kings back in chapter 9 was so righteous that he personally saw Christ. But you don't see that in the community because right after Emmer comes calm and then Heth. So they don't have that consistent righteous leader. Heth comes, very wicked leader, and that's when the famine and the snakes come. So now in chapter 10, when we get four righteous kings in a row, Moroni says, never could be a people more blessed than they were, more prospered by the hand of the Lord. So I just think these middle chapters of Ether are a little bit difficult. I recognize this week, those of you doing Come, Follow Me are going to say, boy, this week is a little bit of a struggle for me because it's all this king and -and so-and-so begat and they're fighting. But see the big picture here, and that is when we as a community choose righteousness, when we are led by righteous leaders, we are prospered. The snakes go away. When we as a community choose wickedness or when we allow wicked people to rule, that's when we fight and we quarrel, and and the book of Ether uses that word captivity so many times. So the Lord in section 89, where he's talking so much about government, it's in section 89 where the Lord says, honest men and wise men should be sought for diligently and good men and wise men ye should observe to uphold, otherwise whatsoever is less than these cometh of evil. And right before that, he had said, when the wicked rule, the people mourn. And so I think this whole chunk of the book of Ether really is a simple message. When Jesus is your king, we prosper. When righteous people rule our country, our society, we prosper. When wicked people rule, we suffer and we are captives. And it's not—I don't want to put so much of it on the leadership of the country as it is upon the individuals. When your leader is righteous, when your leader is Christ, when you choose Christ as your leader, you will prosper. That's good. When you choose wicked people as your leader, we will fall into captivity. One of my favorite, going back to the stripling warriors, one of the things that gave the stripling warriors the ability to be preserved against all odds was because they chose their leader, and they chose Helaman. So if, you, if you're struggling to find something out of this week's reading, I think that's one of the main messages you need to hear, is that when you choose Jesus to be your leader, you will prosper. In fact, the more consistently you choose righteousness as your leader, then it will be said of you that never could a people be more blessed than you. But when you choose wickedness, don't be surprised if captivity and Darth and famine
1: and poisonous snakes follow. The Book of Ether is kind of like the Book of Mormon concentrated. There's a couple instances in here where it's in miniature, like everything you just said is in miniature. So I call this replicish as Noah redux. So if you go to Ether 10 and you just read 4 through 8, I mean, look what this says here. It talks about replicas reigned in the stead of his father, end of verse 4. And what does he do? Look in the middle of verse 5. It says that he had many wives and concubines, and then he did lay that upon men's shoulders, which was grievous to be born. What did he do? He taxed them with heavy taxes. By the way, I love how in the book of Mosiah it says it was one-fifth, and that was so burdensome, (laughs) 20%. Anyway, so he builds spacious buildings, and then what does he do in verse 6? He builds a bunch of prisons, and then notice it says prisons, prisons, taxes, taxes, prisons. So he's all about imprisoning them. And then in the the very front of verse 6, it says that he built himself a beautiful throne. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. Verse 7, he gets this gold that he has refined in prison, and so what does he do? Verse 7. Look at the very end of there. It says, end of verse 7, it came to pass that he did afflict the people with his whoredoms and abominations. Boy, we're right back to the book of Mosiah and yeah, King Noah. It's Noah. Yeah. And then look at the end of verse 8. Ripleychus was killed and his descendants were driven out of land. Not just Ripleychus. But his descendants, he's just he's just not a good dude. And
0: what's interesting is earlier in verse eight, the people did rise up in rebellion against him. That's a good point. The people. So do you remember Noah blindness that when the blinders finally come off? Who kills Noah? The people. The people who had followed him, when they realized you are no friend of ours, the
1: people did rise up in rebellion against him, and Riplekish was killed. In four verses, the whole Chunk of these chapters in Ether just in miniature. It's like right there. As An- if
0: Moroni's waving his arm saying, Don't forget all the things we learned from King Noah. He's reminding us of the message of Noah, not just the
1: story of Noah. Yeah. It's right there. Watch those blinders. Another one is Ether 7, 8 through 10. Is the same kind of stuff happening? The plan in miniature. So we have this king that's in captivity. And so in verse 8, we got this guy named Shul, and what does he do? He's angry with his brother. He became a mighty and strong man, and he was also mighty in judgment, mighty in cretes. He was a man who saw he could distinguish. He could see truth from error. Verse 9, it says, he came to the hill Ephraim and did molten out of the hill, and he made swords out of steel for those whom he had drawn away with him. And after he had armed them with swords, he returned to the city of Nehor and gave battle to his brother Korahor, by which means he obtained the kingdom and restored it to his father. And because of what he does, look at the end of verse 10, he reigned in the stead of his father. And I have in my scriptures here written eight through 10 in three verses right there. We have the plan of salvation in miniature. And it's also kind of the story of kings. I remember growing up and didn't really, as an American, I learned about like the the revolution and how we left England. And it wasn't until much later in my life, I read this book that just blew my mind and I really like it. I like to recommend it because each chapter is like one page. It's super short and it's called the death of Kings, a medical history of the Kings and Queens of England by Clifford Brewer. And what I find fascinating about this book is super short. You can read it in an afternoon. He covers the history, the thousand year history of the Kings of England. And it's like reading the book of ether It's so violent. And I just think, what would have happened if England would have not fought themselves? What if they would have got along, instead of spending all this money on war and killing each other, we could have had the restoration even quicker. And so I I can just see prophets just waving their arms going – this is not working. <laughs> this is dysfunctional. So right there, we have two examples. We have a, a wicked king and a righteous king in just a nutshell. So if you're teaching your kids or you're, you're having a Come, Follow Me lesson and you're like, okay, how could we do this really quick? Well, you could do replication, and you could do shul and you've read six verses and you've kind of covered, in essence, what's going on here. Yep. So that leads us to the real
0: meat of this week's Come, Follow Me chapters, the, the heavy material. Turn with me to Ether chapter 8. So Omer is the king. His son Jared is jealous of his, of his father, wants to take over. So Jared has a daughter who is beautiful and his daughter comes and says, look, I know how to get you the kingdom. I will dance. You invite Akish in. I will dance. He will want me as a, as his wife. And you say that he can have me if he brings you the head of your father, the king. So, all of that happens. She dances for Akish. Akish wants her as his wife. Jared says, Bring me the head of my father. And they form a secret combination. So now Moroni takes over. And Moroni says, I've got some things to say about secret combination. So, verse 18. It came to pass that they formed a secret combination, even as they of old. Which combination is most abominable and wicked above all in the sight of God? And he's going to say, it's this that destroyed both the Nephites and the Jaredites. Verse 21, they, meaning secret combinations, have caused the destruction of this people of whom I am now speaking, the Jaredites, and also the destruction of the people of Nephi. And just as a general warning, whatsoever nation shall uphold such secret combinations to get power and gain until they shall spread over the nation shall be destroyed. Now he calls out a particular nation. So the Jaredites came to this American continent, and they were destroyed by secret combinations. Next came the Lehites, who came to this continent, and they were destroyed by secret combinations. And Moroni says, hey, anyone else who does the same thing is going to be destroyed. And then verse 23, who does he call out? Us. Oh, you Gentiles. Now, I think this is the Nephi version of Gentiles, not all Gentiles all over the world. But this is, oh, you Gentiles like Columbus coming to America and the Pilgrims coming to America and the Revolutionary War. I can't help but think Moroni is saying, all right, those of you who are next and live on American soil, the Jaredites did this, the Nephites did this. Are you going to do the same thing? So Moroni is going to give us two warnings and two realities, two truths, two checks, Warning number one is verse 23. O oh, you Gentiles, O oh, you Americans, O oh, you Latter-day Saints that live in America in 2020, it is wisdom in God that you should see these things, that you should be shown these things, that you may repent of your sins and suffer not that these murderous combinations get above you. In other words, prevent them. Prevent them. There was a reason Jared hired Akish. Back in verse 7, He set his heart upon the kingdom and upon the glory of the world. Verse 16, The secrets of the past are for those who seek power and gain. So raise your children to not hunger and thirst after the things for which secret combinations become the tool prevent them. You have to prevent them. So maybe we ought to pause and say, okay, what are the secret combinations of our day? Now, Mike and I did a podcast on this in the Book of Helaman, which talks so much about secret combinations. If you haven't listened to that, let me give a brief summary, because the Lord has called out
1: a certain set of secret combinations in our day. And Bryce, I think it's important, too, to note that if it's in Helaman and if it's in Ether, it's important. We ought to pay attention. Yeah. And what's what's concerning to me? If you'll start in verse twenty-four. Right, now we're in Ether eight. I'm still
0: in Ether eight, and we're gonna. I w- I'll come back to twenty-four because this is warning number two. But notice the Lord commandeth you when you shall see these things. Now that's plural. When you see these things come among you, that you awake to your awful situation because of now he turns singular. This. Secret combination. And from then on out, it's it. It's a single secret combination. Not general secret combinations. Moroni, who has seen our day, says, you need to wake up to the reality because of this secret combination, which shall be among you, and woe be unto it, because of the blood of them that have been slain. For they cry from the dust for vengeance upon it. So, I don't mean to cause speculation, but Moroni calls out a single secret combination. And in modern-day Scripture, the Lord has called out a single set of secret combinations. So, could it be that Moroni is referring to this particular secret combination that the Lord has called out? So, let me introduce that secret combination— Briefly turn to the Pearl of Great Price, to Moses chapter 5, where Satan and Cain form a secret combination. In verse 30, it says that they did this in secret, meaning one reason we call them secret combinations is because they do things in secret. They hide. But now verse 31, Cain says, I am Mahan, master of this great secret. Again, that's singular. I am Mahan, master of this great secret. And then he reveals Satan's great secret, and that is that I may murder and get gain. Satan's great secret is how to destroy life for personal gain. How do I destroy you so that I get rich? If you look at verse 33 of Moses 5, Cain killed Abel to steal his flocks. Part of the secret he learned is that if I end my brother's life, I get rich because I can steal his flocks. Now, Satan tells that secret to anyone who will listen. Now, let's watch the Lord call out modern-day secret combinations. If you'll turn with me to the Word of Wisdom, section 89, And I know we've done this before, but I think the fact that Moroni brings it up again, it's worthy of a repeat. There is no question that the things in the Word of Wisdom are forbidden because they are unhealthy. But we sometimes only see the unhealthy side of the Word of Wisdom and not the conspiracy side. The reason the Lord says He gave the Word of Wisdom is because of secret combinations. So, Doctrine and Covenants 89, verse 4, Verily, thus saith the Lord, In consequence of evils and designs which do and will exist in the hearts of conspiring men in the last days. There it is. He's calling out a secret combination. I have warned you and forewarned you by giving unto you this word of wisdom by revelation. The word of wisdom is the Lord calling out a secret combination. Now, what's the connection between the Word of Wisdom and the Mahan Principle, meaning destroy lives so that I can get gain? It's addiction. Today, the Satan's secret uses addiction to destroy your life and get gain. I don't necessarily have to kill you and steal your money. I can put an addictive substance into your life, and you will pay me money dearly for the rest of your life, and what you're paying me money to do is to kill you. And so let's talk about addiction. All of the mayhem conspirators out there who use addiction in one way or another to control our lives. So now we go back to Moroni. Warning number one, prevent it. Why do people turn to addiction? Parents out there need to recognize that addiction fills a void in a life that could have been filled some other way. What are those voids that addiction sometimes fills? If we can prevent that, remember, O ye Gentiles, it is wisdom in God that you should be shown these things that you may repent of your sins and suffer not that these murderous combinations get above you, which are built up to get power and gain. In other words, prevent the need. Prevent the hunger in your children's soul that addiction fills, that, that substances that they're addicted to might fill.
1: Prevent it. I think there's a reason why we have such substance addiction in areas where maybe we've got some economic difficulties. And obviously, we're not going to solve all the world's problems in this podcast. But to me, a lot of that is the disintegration of the family. If you have a dysfunctional family, and, you know, the parents aren't there, that void gets filled, right? Yeah. And quite often, that void
0: is filled with substances that cause addiction. And so I think Warning to us in the latter days is prevent the need, prevent the void that causes people to turn to addiction. And then I think the next one is verse 24. Wherefore, the Lord commandeth you, when you see these things come among you. It's going to happen. In the early stages, when they come among you. Awake to a sense of your awful situation. Far too often we see Latter-day Saint parents, as a child starts tinkering with addictive substances, turn their head. It's not going to happen to us. It's not going to happen to my family. It, it, it couldn't happen to me. And so Moroni seems to say, when you see these things come among you, when you see this first signs of addiction, whether that's pornography addiction or substance addiction, when you first start to see it, you wake up to a sense of your awful situation. There is help available. And it's much more effective at the early stages than it is later. Wake up to the reality When you first start to see the signs, don't just hope they'll go away. Don't just assume, oh, it can't happen to my family. When you see the early signs, wake up to the sense of your awful situation. Get help. There are so many resources out there that will help. Now what Moroni is going to do is give us two truths, and I love these truths. One is a positive and one, one is a negative, but they are two truths. So remember, Jared hires a secret combination to kill his father so that Jared can be the king. So in chapter 9, Ether 9, verse 3, the Lord warned Omer in a dream that he should depart out of the land. He foiled the secret. The Lord will help us. And going back to parents who are starting to notice an addiction come into their family. I testify, if you will seek his help, the Lord will help you. The Lord will help with secret combinations. That's the promise. The Lord warned Omer in a dream. And he'll warn you. He will warn you. Our prophets will warn us. The Lord is going to help you if you consistently seek the Lord in your life. The other thing is kind of a reality that people need to understand. There are people who turn to secret combinations because there's a void in their life. But what they need to know about the secret combinations, Jared hires Akish to kill his father. But then what happens to Jared? Verse six. Akish kills Jared. So the man who hired the secret combination for his gain is actually destroyed by the very secret combination he hired to
1: bless him. We all think we're the exception.
0: And we all do. But the reality is, if you let that poison into your life, thinking it will bless you and help you, don't be surprised if it poisons you. If you get involved in the kind of things that God has forbidden Thinking it's a good idea, you're going to fall prey
1: to the same thing that Jared did. So in Lord of the Rings, Boromir sees the one ring and he's like, if you just give it to me, I promise I'll use it for good. I promise I'll use I it for good. I the can reality handle it. is we all knew what, what, what he would have done with it. And even the founders of the of the U.S. Constitution said, government is a really strong power. We've got to check it and we've got to check the person checking it. We've got to check that. And so I think all of us have these things in our life where it doesn't say in verse 24, if you see these things, it says when you see these things. And so I really like that, Bryce, where we have to be awake to it. In these chapters, there really are two contraries or two opposites. You have the oaths of the secret combination guys, but then you also have what the prophets do. You have covenants and promises yeah. so and we have, temple ordinances. Yeah, we have all that. And so look at verse 25 of chapter 8, where Moroni just says it's that same being, that same liar that beguiled our parents. That's who's in charge of them. Both groups have a father. The visionary men and women of the Book of Mormon, they have a father who is Christ. And these Gadiantans, as they were, are the secret combination people, they have a father who is the devil. And I I like that in Ether 8.21 where Moroni says that's going to prove their entire destruction. Look at the oath they make in chapter 8. Look in 14, the oath, where it says, It came to pass that they did swear unto him by the God of heaven, and by the heavens, and also by the earth, and by their heads, that whoso should vary from the assistance which Achish desired should lose his head. And whoso should divulge whatsoever thing Achish made known unto him or unto them, the same should lose his life. And so what are they swearing by? Well, they're swearing by themselves and the heavens and their heads and the earth. They're making this this oath, as it were. And if you think about it, this is in the exact opposite of the oath that Jesus says in, in Matthew 5.33. Uh, he says, don't swear by these things. If you go to Helaman 1, verse 11, look at this. It says that he went into those that sent him, and they entered into a covenant, yea, swearing by their everlasting maker that they would tell no man that Kishkumen had murdered Pahoran. So they're doing the same kinds of things. Done in, in, in secret. Yeah, it's totally done in secret. And this is the opposite of what we read in Matthew 5.33. And so that's a little bit on the oath. Then you get into, like, well, what are the visionary men and women of the Book of Mormon seeking? And what are the Gadiantans seeking? And if you look at Helaman 2 four and five we read about how they make this covenant and they want to seek to have the throne. They want to seek the judgment seat. And then go to first Nephi chapter one and look at this verse eight. Overcome by the Spirit, they have this vision, and he's caught up to the midst of heaven and he sees God sitting upon his throne. In other words, the visionaries in the Book of Mormon approach God in his throne, and the wicked people want to take a throne. They want to take political power. And so we see this also in Isaiah's attack on Lucifer, the son of the morning, where it says he wants to sit on the throne of God above the stars of God. And then just a couple more. The mysteries. What about the mysteries? So go to Alma 37. Look at verse 21. I will speak unto you concerning the 24 plates that ye keep them that the mysteries of the works of darkness and their secret works or the secret works of those people who have been destroyed may be made manifest unto this people in other words we read that these these bad guys in the book of mormon are seeking the mysteries but not the mysteries of heaven but the mysteries and the works of darkness and yet In 1 Nephi 1 verse 1, right out of the gate in the Book of Mormon, Nephi tells you that he's been initiated into the mysteries of heaven. And so just to recap, these secret combination people are the exact opposite of the visionaries. They both seek a throne, but the bad guys seek political power. They both seek mysteries, but not the same. They both are associated with this idea of covenant making. Then As Bryce talked about with the Mahan principle, they seek power over the flesh, and the righteous seek power to represent the Lord. Remember Alma 29, where Alma says, oh, that I were an angel, and I had the power to bring souls unto Christ. So they both want power. And one of the greatest prophets of
0: the Book of Mormon who actually was given God's omnipotent power didn't use it on himself. He called down a famine so that the people would repent. So righteous seek power so that they can lead people to repentance. The
1: wicked seek power so that they can control them and steal their money. Totally. So that being said, I want to end with this thought about the prophets. So if you go to Ether chapter 9, look what it says. Verse 28. There came prophets in the land crying repentance unto them. That they must prepare the way of the Lord, or there would be a curse upon the face of the land. Even there should be a great famine, as we've just discussed. And they don't believe them; they throw them in a pit. But the prophets are the antithesis to these guys, and they keep popping up trying to help the people. We see it again in chapter eleven. So if you go there, verse twelve, it came to pass in days of Ethan, there came many prophets and prophesied again unto the people. Yea, they did prophesy that the Lord would utterly destroy them from off the face of the earth, except they repented of their iniquities. Over and over again, that seems to be the theme. It's this duality. There's those that are involved in darkness and the secret society and those that are involved in light. And I find it interesting that throughout the Book of Mormon, these prophetic authors are using kind of the same themes to describe both. And I don't think it's a coincidence. And so think about this. Just like the Book of Mormon ended in Mormon 6, one of the endings, we have this temple scenario. The Book of Ether is going to end the same way, and it started, the Book of Ether started with these ideas of the temple and seeing God and beholding God. Well, because it ends in a bad way, we're going to see the temple motifs or themes be inverted, and so that's a little bit of a heads up for what what's coming up. But throughout these chapters, 6 through 11, we also see it inverted. We see these, I'm going to call them Antons. Moroni doesn't call them that. He just calls them the secret society. But we see them kind of doing and seeking the same the same things, just inverted. Like not the throne of God, but the throne of political power and so forth that we've talked about. So I like that as, as a piece of literature to read it, to see kind of what Moroni is doing, as he's crafting this text. Now, my testimony is this. To me, you could teach the Book of Ether pretty quick by just doing a couple of these passages. But since we're doing a podcast, I really like the idea of looking at some of these and and seeing the layers that Moroni is working with. And I also like to say that I think, Bryce, that the Book of Ether is kind of like the Book of Mormon concentrated. Yeah. Well, you take uh, people that lived longer than the
0: Nephites lived, and you're going to tell that story in 15 chapters. Super short. So clearly you're going to take many of the themes of the Book of Mormon and condense them. Choose Jesus as your righteous leader and you will prosper. And with that, we'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.